Hello and welcome to Season 4 of Public Health Disrupted with me, Zand Van Tulliken. And me, Rochelle Burgess. Zand is a doctor, writer and TV presenter, and I'm a community health psychologist and associate professor at the UCL Institute for Global Health. Now, this podcast is about public health, but more importantly, it's about the systems that need disrupting to make public health better. So join us each month as we challenge the status quo of the public health field, asking what needs to change, why and how to get there. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing the impacts of humanitarian crises on population health. Our guests will explore how technology is reshaping humanitarian response efforts and the promising technologies on the horizon that might help protect the health of populations. But what are the ethical implications of these technologies and what are the challenges within that that might need to be addressed? We're really lucky to have our guests today who will help us explore this a bit further. Our first guest today is Professor Maria Kett. She's an anthropologist by training. Maria has extensive expertise in disability-inclusive humanitarian responses. She's undertaken research in countries across Africa and Asia, leading on a number of research programs on disability and international development, and she's author of over 140 publications. Maria also leads on the humanitarian-focused work for the Global Disability Innovation Hub. She regularly serves as a consultant for numerous bilateral and multilateral donors, including the UK FCDO, the World Health Organization, and the United Nations. Maria is the program director for the new UCL MSC in Humanitarian Policy and Practice, and she is also a friend of mine of about 25 years standing and has held my hand through a number of personal and professional humanitarian issues. So Maria, I'm absolutely thrilled to have you on the show. Uh, You can't see Maria, but she did a bit of a nice salute there. (laughs) We're also so delighted and really lucky to have our second guest with us, Sarah Spencer, who's joining us today from Nairobi. Sarah is working with the UK Humanitarian Innovation Hub as their AI technical consultant for humanitarian innovation and emerging technologies. Sarah is a multi-domain expert working at the intersection of AI, national security and public policy. Not a very easy intersection to navigate, I imagine, Sarah. Um, She helps governments, industry, and civil society address the challenges posed by AI and ethically capitalize on the opportunities offered by AI. Sarah has spent over two decades working with and in support of communities affected by conflict and crisis and is a regular commentator on AI for good and the geopolitics of advanced technologies. Welcome, Maria and Sarah. Thank you so much for being here. I think Zand is going to start off with our first question today. Maria, can I I start with you? Because I think um, a lot of people approaching humanitarian crises for the first time or even working in them for the first time find it hard to deal with the terminology between humanitarian crises, complex emergencies, violent conflicts, wars, all these natural disasters, all these different phenomena. Um, So can you give us an overview of what a humanitarian crisis is, the impacts they have on population? health and the role that public health professionals play in just a small question to start with then <laughs> so thanks for having me here and, and yeah I, I think it's really important to start by saying that there are many definitions and, and you've touched on that already the ones that we can talk about for this is that it's an event or a series of events that really does overwhelm or, or poses a critical threat to health and security and safety but I think 
one of the other important things to consider is oftentimes it's that it overwhelms national capacity to cope and that requires some some international assistance. The things that we might want to think about implicit in that international assistance and some of the questions that we ask about today are that does mean external assistance from other countries or other organisations. And there are lots of things that come with this, humanitarian principles, ethics, solidarity, bearing witness, and we can unpack some of those and some of the implications of using technology and AI around some of those. I think there are a number of other things to think about. Currently on the TV, we're seeing Gaza, before that was Ukraine. Oftentimes, humanitarian situations are not linear. They don't have a neat beginning, middle and end. They can be chronically going on for years. Um, I think about when I first started and you talked about knowing you for 25 years. I was in Azerbaijan and working on the Nagorno-Karabakh and we saw that research not so long ago, actually. These things can be sort of ticking along and not really in the news, but they're still going on and then and flare back up. Um, we also know that they're increasing in their nature allegedly, and increasingly complex. That's undoubtable. That's partly due to the change in nature of warfare. And again, the technologies involved in that we we see daily on our screens, targeted warfare, targeted infrastructure, etc. We also know the different actors that are involved, and that includes increasingly the private sector. And, and again, we might want to unpack about who we mean in that. But they're also um, you know, the ability to access populations. And I think this has been really stark, how we access affected populations, but also how we speak out about that access. And sometimes that access is contingent on not speaking out. And that, that can be really difficult for um, organisations when you think about one of the key factors of bearing witness. Um, there's some evidence out there, the last State of the World Humanitarian Situation Report um, from ALNAP, I think, really said that the funding levels are about the same, haven't really changed, but actually we're not maybe doing as good a job as we were. The overall general trajectory is the same or worse. And that's partly due to the fact that funding levels are going down or being spread amongst more um, difficult situations. That means that because of all of these things, the impact on population health is really various. It depends on the type of disaster, the type of conflict. But, you know, we also think about the, the chronicity, the longer term implications. And we always try to deliver the same standard of healthcare as people might have had in the country there of origin or the country as was. So that could be a pretty high standard of healthcare in, in many cases, and why not? Um, so to try and attempt to deliver those same standards of healthcare. But we often forget about basic public health measures, including vaccinations, spread of communicable diseases, again, something we're seeing a lot of in the current conflicts. Um, sex and reproductive health, again, something we're seeing a lot about, for example, from Gaza. And how we measure and predict these is, is really important. And, and that's something that we can come back to when talking about technologies more broadly. And the final thing was about the role of public health professionals. And I think I would say it's, it's the classic, isn't it, is to prevent, predict and support emergencies and longer term responses, both local and international. It's so difficult. I mean, my experience of working both in clinical health delivery healthcare as a, as a doctor in a hospital and then in public health was that those two jobs overlapped. And a huge part of our role was actually about bearing witness, about gathering information, about telling stories, about being being present as well. So it's a very, very complex role that you're you're trying to summarise there. And, and in a way, of course, almost all the different disciplines that work in humanitarian crises are in some ways doing public health, even if they're peacekeepers, they are in a way trying to intervene in a health crisis as much as solve a political situation. So that's a lovely overview of the, of the, the, the area. It feels like one of the domains within global health that is full of the most tension, which is surprising to, to say because the whole field is just, is very much defined by tension. 
but I was just really struck, Maria, when because I've never really heard the phrase prevent encapsulated in all of that. And perhaps it's because I, I, I don't specifically focus uh, in the context of sort of complex emergency and humanitarian crisis. And I guess using the word complex emergency possibly dates me as to the last time I was engaging with that, that, that literature. I just, is it ever, and maybe this isn't even an answerable question, but this idea about how we engage in this notion and domain of prevention in the context of ongoing conflict and emergency, like prevent then ultimately comes deeply political, does it not? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I and I deliberately was a bit vague about prevent, you know, one could have meant prevent cholera outbreaks, prevent hunger, yeah, prevent yeah. famine. Um, but you're absolutely right. And the, increasingly, I was listening to a programme this morning on Radio 4 about war crimes tribunals. In public health, we always say prevention is better than, than cure. So the logic yeah. extends, right? You know, we, we, instead of thinking how better to fight war, it's probably better not to fight it in the first place. But, you know, as you say, it's entirely political. And I guess that's the other thing. Obviously, there are factors that take how responses are delivered, how much funding goes into, um, you know, scenarios, who, you know, who makes the decisions about you know, peace negotiations. These are entirely political. And, and yeah. we often see these technologies, new emerging technologies, AI, as some kind of magic bullet solution, and they're not going to be. And, and Sarah and I have discussed this in other contexts, but, um, you know, they're, they're not a magic bullet solution. And that's, I think, you know, the temptation is to always find the next thing to try and solve or at least alleviate you know suffering and humanities yeah. you know the things we do to each other that are just awful um but um yeah. it, it'll be interesting um yeah let's see how this unpacks <laughs> i mean sarah can you can you jump in there because that was sort of my gut reaction in sort of hearing about technology and ai just sort of like oh is this the this is our current magic bullet interest what does the use of technology actually mean in this context? Like what, what sort of shape does it take and, and how is it changing things? I think it's important just to build on what Maria was saying around what, you know, around humanitarian action and humanitarian crises to think explicitly about what is different about humanitarian response than say development aid and other interventions related to poverty reduction. And the uniqueness, the two things that are really unique about humanitarian action, one is that it is ultimately about life-saving interventions. So this isn't about sort of, you know, structural budget reforms with the IMF or the World Bank. This isn't about sort of longer term agricultural productivity in country X. This is really about responding to um, situations where there are opportunities to either um, decrease morbidity or mortality rates and or both. Um, and so certainly health has always played a key component of it. And the origins of humanitarian assistance stretch back, you know, to the 19th century and really related to uh, the rights of civilians as well as non-combatants, combatants that were wounded in conflict and therefore no longer deemed as combatants to healthcare, to, you know, Florence Nightingale, Red Cross, you can think of all those images. And it's grown from there. And the other really important thing to consider, which technology impacts, are the humanitarian principles. Um, and there's a wider argument about how those are adhered to or not adhered to these days. But two of those principles, the principle of neutrality and the principle of our impartiality, are really critical for humanitarian 
agencies operating in places like Ukraine or Gaza, where they the 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 license they have to trade is derived from the fact that they are neutral and impartial players in the conflict. They do not play a political role. They are not peacekeepers. They are not people who are brokering um, peace agreements. They are there to provide life-saving interventions, which would normally, you know, for political scientists out there, be, be provided by the state. And the state, you know, in these instances are either unwilling or unable to provide those services, which may be related to public health, but they could also be related to sort of social work or employment and, you know, cash vouchers, right? Like the way that you'd normally receive some kind of cash to be able to, or shelter or other things. So thinking about how technology weaves into that, I think what's happening these days is that humanitarian actors are looking at this sort of escalating sort of productivity and especially generative AI, but there's also, you know, the wider sort of landscape of AI. But to think more broadly about technologies, I think there's sort of four baskets or buckets into which these use cases look. One of them is about making their internal operations more efficient. So thinking about how technologies can improve supply chain management or looking at the predictive maintenance of aid infrastructure. So, you know, how often do you need to service your generators or your fleets? So WF World Food Program, WFP, and ICRC have huge fleets of aircraft, fixed-wing aircraft, and as well as vehicles, as well as most other INGOs. And there's a significant effort that goes into maintaining those vehicles. Now, certain technologies are very good at maintaining machines, basically. Um, so there's a sort of internal operational efficiency that that certain actors are looking at. The second one is about extending the reach of who we can support. How do you get further? How do you get to the last mile? And this is where sort of robotics and unmanned, uh, uncrewed aircraft, UAVs, drones, et cetera, can take um, supplies and equipment to the, the last mile. Or equally, how do you extend lines of communications into hard to reach areas? How do you get better information from unreachable areas about needs on the ground. The third one is about the speed of the response. So how do you make your response even quicker? How can you get out the door quickly? There's some really interesting use cases there linked to geospatial imagery, which we can get into, and the prediction of how a natural disaster, for example, might impact a certain community down to sort of one square kilometer so people can pre-position resources and logistics. And I think the last one is sort of about the quality of the services delivered. And there are some really exciting use cases in the health space, in health and humanitarian. I do want to say that there are some sort of red herrings and that desire to find the panacea or the the cure-all for everything can sometimes lead us astray. And I think one of those areas is around the prediction of population displacement or the prediction of a new conflict, like a black swan event. And there has been extensive money and resources, time, effort, um, to put into the design or the creation of predictive analytical models, machine learning models to try and figure out will a population go here or there and wouldn't it be great if we could figure that out because we could pre-position the aid. And in my experience, you know, the first challenge there is that the likelihood of that outcome being correct are pretty low. 
Um, but the more important conclusion is that you, there's an assumption baked into there that the response will be benevolent. Now, for humanitarian actors, of course, it's going to be benevolent because that's the aim of humanitarian action. For political actors, you may well see, right, population, 20,000 people are expected to cross X border and we should preposition our aid. Well, the state, that state might actually say, oh, great, good to know. I'm going to seal that border. <laughs> I'm not going to let those people cross the border and declare, declare or claim asylum. Um, as refugees. So there there are those political, coming back to Maria and um, Zan's earlier conversation, there are political factors at play, which will impact how those specific technological use cases are designed and whether they're deployed in the with the intention that they're meant to. That's such a, a, an amazingly lovely, comprehensive answer. And you, you raise this problem of the, the perfectibility of the response, where even if we imagine a response that was completely perfect, and I've worked in well-run camps where, you know, services are delivered on time of a decent quality. And of course, you're still, you know, overseeing some massive human displacement that is not, you're not in any way solving the problems that people want solved. And and even even camps I've visited, even the, if I think of the, the camps in, in Calais and Dunkirk, where they were providing very high quality facilities in certain places, they were not what people, what people wanted was to move. Um, and so I just wonder, Maria, can I start with you? There's a, I, I suppose there's a question about the ethical implications or even the meaning of this kind of technology. Once you can say there's going to be an atrocity or a war or a displacement in this moment, you use the AI to predict that, and then you have a drone deliver the food so that the people who've been predictably bombed are predictably fed in a predictable camp somewhere or you're just kind of endlessly marginally improving the delivery of goods and services in these sort of terrible situations that shouldn't exist do, do you think the technology does have ethical implications that that we need to be aware of that might alter the, the sort of the nature of humanitarianism which is which is grounded in in our shared humanity i think yes is the obvious answer isn't it all of the things you've just said massive ethical implications i've worked for years on looking at how we could better include people with disabilities in humanitarian responses but every single humanitarian response who gets left behind we are doing better than we were 20 years ago on inclusion but I can bet you a bottom dollar, you know, I will go to any humanitarian context and we can predict population movements, but we also, you know, think about who's not moving. So if we predict to put all our resources in the place they're going to, then what about the people we've left behind? Which again, Sarah, comes back to your point about reaching the last mile, because always there are people who can't move, can't flee, don't flee for whatever reasons that, that they have. And what happens to those people? They're, they're really amongst some of the most vulnerable for obvious reasons. I guess agencies have huge volumes of data, including biometric data, personal data about people, about their movements. These are huge data sets and they are there. Who owns those data sets? You know, what security measures are in place when the data is being transferred? Whether if you're a person in a field um, site for UNHCR transmitting that data, you've got to think about the potential avenues for data breach. But I guess the other question is, what choice do people have if they're not opting into these large-scale data sets? And this is something that we really haven't thought, I think. You've, you've got to be in those data sets to get assistance. If that's the tracing data for um, ICRC, whether it's the um, needs assessment data for UNHCR, whatever, whatever, you have to be opted in. The sort of bias is well known in, in let's say, in AI algorithms. You know, we've heard about this. You know, a lot of the testing is done on standardized data sets. So that does call into question replicating standardized data sets where people who are not data that's not 
outside of the standard isn't in there. So I guess it perpetuates exclusion or people who don't necessarily want to be included. And do humanitarians really understand all the implications of new technologies, AI? Do the AI folks really understand the humanitarian? You know, there's a lot of coming together of these worlds. I was nodding enthusiastically at a lot of those comments. Um, just to pick up on the data point, but it's not necessarily a question or only a question of whether you have the access to the data necessary to power a model, machine learning, AI, or otherwise. Um, but it's a question of whether you can use it. And it's not only a legal question. It's an ethical one. So the UN agencies that Maria was citing sit on personally identifiable information, PII, of tens of millions of people and arguably some of the most vulnerable people on the planet. Um, now, are they allowed to use it to power an AI model? At the moment, there's not the, the legal parameters around that are pretty vague, particularly for international public organizations like UN agencies. But there is, I think the ethical question isn't as vague. I don't think there's an ethical dilemma there. I think the I think using the data of tens of millions of people who are very vulnerable and living in very vulnerable situations, not only related to their own morbidity and mortality, but to their own political existence and what it means to be someone fleeing from persecution um, or fear of uh, free of death is it, that that doesn't feel like an ethical application of AI. Um, you know, the right to opt out of automated decision-making is sort of fast becoming a right in the UK and Europe because of movements by the European Union and the Council of Europe to regulate how AI is used. And it's becoming sort of more in the public conscious that you should be able to have a right to an, a human decision. And yet somehow that rhetoric is not, or those discussions are not passing into the humanitarian community, which is sort of in, in perverse, right? It should be the opposite. You should be thinking that the people who are less empowered, both sort of financially, in terms of their own rights, in terms of their mobility, in terms of anything, shouldn't be automatically be getting the sort of bottom end of the stick, as it were. Um, the consent and agency point is sort of linked to that, right? I think that is where we're missing a trick with regards to technologies and the delivery of humanitarian services. That should be the fundamental starting point. Is this going to improve the way in which we deliver services to an individual? And does the individual know how those services are being delivered? And can we hold those people to account when it's not delivered in that way, in the way that it's intended to? I've been in a couple of worrying conversations where um, computer scientists and engineers will say, well, we can't really explain the, these kind of technologies to people in North, northern Burkina Faso, for example. And I think there are ways to explain it to mm. those populations in a way that, um, you know, particularly if you're thinking about food security or farming practices, there are lots of different tricks of the trade that that farmers and, and pe you know, people in the agricultural sector will use to predict you know, certain outcomes and where the seasons will come. And it's sort of the same path. So there are ways to communicate these technologies. I, I fear it's a little bit of cutting corners um, and trying to find sort of ways around um, ethical principles. And it's a thing that, you know, we heard back at the start of um, antiretrovirals being used. Well, Africans can't have them because Africans don't wear watches. Africans can't tell the time, all this stuff. And it's this is a very kind of um, a common level of resistance to explaining things that actually either people in the global north would equally struggle to understand or that people are perfectly capable of understanding in, in northern Kenya for as, as you say. I mean, it's pretty lazy 
and racist. <laughs> oh, that was the word we were looking for. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I'm very happy to just say the thing that's the thing. And it's, it's yeah. you know, and I feel like these fields and these domains that we work in, that that is often this case of those two words that we feel very uncomfortable with. But I wanted to ask you both what you thought about, like how, to me, it feels like there's something bound up in the logic of emergency that also enables the laziness part. That was one of the things I always grappled with, that we were working within a logic of, of emergency, which you just described so well earlier, Sarah, you know, the need to sort of replace and ensure survival. And that comes needs to come at pace, right? But we're still working in, in these contexts where the emergency is so protracted and so embedded that actually there is sometimes enough time to take time and think about these things. And I just wondered how you both felt about how that plays into some of these, I don't know, the risks of AI and, and how likely we are to work around them. I want to, I'll, I'll jump in and say one thing in defense of my humanitarian colleagues in that without betraying my age, I think for those of us who've been in on the front lines of emergencies for decades I remember when I first started my career, my sort of senior colleagues had responded to the Afghan crisis in the 80s, in the early 80s, which has not gone away. I mean, I lived in Pakistan for several years and, you know, the the government of Pakistan is still trying to work out what do they do with Afghans who live legally in Pakistan, as well as, you know, the displaced populations and refugee populations there. Um, so I think part of it stems from how are we going to find our way out of this? How can we actually have a really gold standard humanitarian response? Is there, you know, a savior technology that can help us accelerate that? But to your point before, Rochelle, about the inherent racism that exists in some of these technologies, that's baked into these technologies and certainly plenty of them. I live in Nairobi and there is a booming tech scene here as there are in a couple of other cities across the continent and sub-Saharan Africa, especially. And, you know, when we talk about the use cases that exist for new emergency advanced technologies in the humanitarian sector, there are like five names that we think of who can supply that. And I don't want to necessarily name check them, but you can think of who, which agencies or which firms, humanitarian agencies turn to. They do not turn to the ones in Kenya. They do not turn to the ones in Ghana or Nigeria. And that, I don't think, I think that is laziness. I think that is this like, you know, huge humanitarian industry turning over 30 to 40 billion US a year to support 300 million people in, in need. Um, and there are, solutions out there, but it requires building those relationships. And to Maria's point earlier about, you know, are the tech people really understanding the humanitarian problems? Are the humanitarians really, really understanding the tech? Like, do they really understand the tech? And there are some bridges to be built with firms and agencies in the global South. So we don't roll back on the commitments that we as a humanitarian community have made to shift power and resources and decision-making to indigenous civil society actors who have been at the front lines of these crises for decades, right? It's not just all about the international agencies yeah. and the UN agencies. It is about local indigenous civil society movements, as well as now this increasing sort of tech startup scene, which is super exciting, but yet lacks access to that sort of customer base. This is a really important point. And I want to just highlight because I think in 
at the beginning, I mentioned that I worked on assistive technology um, for um, older adults, people with disabilities, all kinds of assistive technologies. And there's some really interesting innovations being done in, in places like Ghana, like Kenya. And I think that the humanitarian sector has very much pushed for a localization agenda. It's, it's been a really key issue in the humanitarian sector. And I think that's really I guess if I was thinking about a promising technology, it wouldn't necessarily be the technology itself, but one of the promising approaches could be this idea of trying to join these dots up. There's a whole localization agenda that could work better with a whole kind of emerging technologies from the affected populations, really thinking through how that comes back to accountability. And Sarah touched on supply chains. But actually, when you think about the sheer volume, take account, just thinking about vaccination supplies, cold chain, the logistics is unbelievably complicated and huge. So I think joining up some of those dots, bringing the localization agenda, bringing local innovations, um, trying to get more funding um, for people, I think could be a promising technology on the horizon rather than listing different kinds of technologies. But it sounds like um, both you and Sarah are resisting this sort of, yay, the technology is going to fix all these problems. And I, I guess particularly with your work in disability, that, that must be something that's familiar with people saying, oh, well, you know, we can get rid of uh, problems for anyone with disability with, with technology when, in fact, we've, we've built a world that's, in, you know, you wouldn't need that much technology to make things a bit more accessible. Am I hearing that correctly? I think what I would say to that is it's absolutely an ecosystem. And you, you can have the product, you need the procurement, you need the policy, you need the person, you need a whole system for it. It's not one of those things. And this is very well, you know, the WHO have a nice five Ps approach to this in the assistive technology world. But I think it works just as well outside, actually. You know, you need a policy, you need a product, you need a procurement system. Them. You need people to deliver it and people to, to be on the receiving end. And I think it's it, just doing one of those things isn't going to be the, isn't going to solve it. But having a joined up ecosystem approach, I guess, is more, um, would have a more promising chance of success, I think. Bearing in mind what both of you have just said, this question may sound a bit um, crass, but when people think of technology um, in healthcare particularly, we often think of a particular widget or a particular gadget, uh, whether it's a, um, you know, a wearable piece of tech or a, a glucose monitor or something like that. In humanitarian aid, you might think of a drone or a tracking device or something. Is there any tech, um, and I suppose I'm particularly thinking in AI, that is a game, game changer on its own, where you go, well, look, that one thing, that bit of facial recognition software or something, that actually has just been pure out useful is there anything that you can point to and go, we are really excited about that thing or does it not work that way? I think the answer is yes, um, but, or yes and. Um, the first thing to say is that AI is like rarely on its own as delivering this profound change because it works very well with in, inherently with lots of other technologies. I think the things that have excited me are about how AI and machine learning are being used to contain epidemics. We saw them used um, in places like uh, cholera containment in Yemen a few years ago to predict where cholera might spread at a subnational or subregional level and therefore deploying preventative measures in response. And those are low stakes, low risk scenarios because if you send out a hand washing station and other sort of you know, water and sanitation interventions in advance of cholera arriving, 
it's sort of no harm, no foul. You know, everyone's got improved sanitation facilities. There's no negative consequence aside from potentially a diversion of, of limited resources. They're using the same kind of models for to, to identify how to uh, find efficiencies in vaccine delivery, specifically in sparsely populated areas. So how can you route your vaccine delivery if you have a couple of guys on motorcycles? What's the best way to get your vaccines into arms the most quickly and the most effective way? And AI is really good at being able to discover new vaccines, for example. Um, and then there was something around, this is, this is, I'm not a health person, but there was something recently around AI and machine learning being able to identify new um, uh, bacterials that are more resistant, like, like a MRSA, um, MRSA, being more resistant to certain types of um, antibiotics. And that was done, that was published in Nature magazine. I know that AlphaFold and DeepMind um, are really working on trying to get a more effective malaria vaccine out to market. And that really will, that really will be a game changer. I think there is this risk around humanitarian surveillance that we're not quite the humanitarian community hasn't yet mm -hmm. quite gripped. And you can go back 10 years ago, five years ago, and find quotes from senior leaders in the UN or humanitarian communities saying, you know, it's so exciting. We can now track Sarah, who's in a refugee camp in Jordan, and I've now moved to Egypt. And that means continuity of care, because in their mind, they're thinking, this is great. We can now make sure we're meeting their protection needs, make sure they still have, you know, all the paperwork they need as an asylum seeker or a refugee in that new context. You know, inverse that, right? And you think about any of the states in Europe who are really keen on reducing the numbers of asylum seekers at their borders and how human humanitarian uh, data and trends towards datafication of refugees yeah. can really lead to a reduction in their rights and their ability to enjoy those rights. And we've seen that happen. That's not a, an imagined scenario. That's yeah. real. I think that if your biometrics, if you're registered into DAB, claiming asylum in Europe becomes a, a nightmare. Um, Mm -hmm. No, that's that's a very helpful level of balance. It's such an important point. Maria, do you have anything to add? You know, we've, we've got lots of promising apps to do sign language translations and all different translations and speech to language. Like, these are all fantastic, but I come back to the point I was making earlier. In and of themselves, they won't ensure equity and inclusion. There's been lots of reports about who are the most marginalized, most left behind, and we can, in different contexts, it'll be different groups. And technology, I think, has the power to help promote inclusion but it's not in and of itself enough and i think that's the key message really it's what are what are our expectations around the technology what do we want it to do and what else has to be in place in order to enable that and so there are some really great uses out there not necessarily directly humanitarian but could work in the humanitarian setting but it's also just have that caveat is in and of itself it's it, it's not enough it has to be in a wider context that sort of um final message that i feel like resonates across many generations of sort of public health and, and health improvement is that we need to be working across boundaries, across contexts and, and thinking in complex ways. I wanted to thank you both so much. It's been really amazing. And I feel like I've learned a huge amount, actually. And it's, it's been really great. Um, just as we come towards wrapping up, because we're interested in sort of this idea of disrupting thinking and and not just within in public health but um but beyond we ask every guest about a piece of art or music or poetry that has disrupted their perspective so i wonder if either of you had yours to share with us today 
Sarah's nodding. You guys have prepared it. I'm really excited to hear hear what you have to say. Um, can we start with Sarah? Yeah, I um, as a parent of what feels like a legion of small people, <laughs> I rarely have time to enjoy art, music, <laughs> or poetry. Um, so this was a hard question, really, for me. Um, but I have always been fascinated by history, and I studied history in undergrad. And I've just finished Patrick Keefe's book um, called The Empire of Pain, which is about the history of the Sackler family and um, the opiate crisis, crisis in the United States. And what was really interesting in that book, aside from a number of things, but one of the really interesting pieces in that book or stories in that book is about Arthur Sackler and the Sackler Enclave, which was this sort of private storage facility he had in the Metropolitan Museum of Art and used as leverage uh, over both the Met and the Smithsonian in, the wa in Washington. And it was arguably something like one of the biggest collections of Asian art in, in the world. Um, and and how that's linked to some of the philanthropic ventures of, of Sackler, the Sackler family themselves. And I think what it helped remind me of or what it, it, it caused me to reflect on was sort of what we as a society consider a private or a public good and how they should be managed and by whom. Um, and so the link for me is around thinking about these new technologies and the vast wealth um, that they're creating and, and that are associated with them and the narratives around sort of AI for good and technology for good. And if they are for good, where is the sort of public consumption of that? And, and you know, how do we sort of dig into the motivations between corporate philanthropies and politics behind the sort of philanthropic ventures of high net worth individuals? Oh, I want to start the podcast again from that statement. <laughs> Slip it all around and go back. That is so. That is such an amazing um, insight, uh, Maria. Yeah, I have to. And I have to top that, don't I? <laughs> that amazing. Um, I'm actually going to stick with art. I'm going to say Ai Weiwei. It might be predictable, but actually, um, I studied in China for a number of years and very well remember the sort of artist collective starting up, really. And I remember the first time I saw the Ai Weiwei video of him smashing the vases. And you can make a lot of criticisms about Ai Weiwei. I think his his exhibition that he did after the Sichuan earthquake. I was in China when the Lijiang earthquake happened and, and saw the might of the Chinese response to an earthquake actually and I think the interesting thing he's he's was a very it was the rucksacks of the children on the wall spelling out the um a, a sentence and I think what was really poignant it was very simple really um and you could it has been criticized some people will say he's commodifying you know suffering in China and that may also be true but I think he's been pretty consistent it's they're quite simple some of them are really obvious. It might be a marbled camera, surveillance camera, rods from the earthquake buildings. But I think his work, for me, it kind of does what it says on the tin. He's making a point. It's not subtly disruptive in some sense. It's just, it's just, yeah. it's kind of obvious. But I, I think for me, he's not the only artist that does that. But I, I think he's been quite striking in his simplicity about it. Oh, you're both totally brilliant. Thank you very, very much indeed. Yeah. That was great. Thank you so much. Thanks, guys. Nice to meet you. You've been listening to Public Health Disrupted. This episode was presented by me, Rochelle Burgess, and Zan Van Teleken, produced by UCL Health of the Public, and edited by Annabelle Buckland at Decibel Creative. Our thanks again to today's amazing guests, Maria Kett and Sarah Spencer. 
If you'd like to hear more of these fascinating discussions from UCL Health of the Public, make sure you're subscribed to this podcast so you don't miss future episodes. Come and discover more online and keep up with the school's latest news, events and research. Just Google UCL Health of the Public. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone.